together.
Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for safe travels for all. Pray your blessing over the service, over this time that we gather together, that we will be a blessing to each other and a blessing to you, a blessing to our community. God, teach us how to be your children better. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, and welcome to Refuge. Um, it's going to take a couple minutes to grow a family at this time. Greet those around you. Maybe grab a cup of coffee if you haven't yet.
Yeah, we're gonna dismiss the kill the <laughs> the children. Um, if you can, with me, as you're finishing up your conversation, extend a hand towards the uh, towards the children's ministry or towards the nearest child to you, and let's let's pray for them to have a a, a safe and, and beneficial time in children's ministry. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these children. We pro we thank you for the blessings that they are, the fun and enjoyment. Um, God, we pray for this time in children's ministry where they can, where they can grow, to learn about you and to learn what it is to serve you. Um, and also that this time would help them grow with each other. Um, as as a family, as a friend group. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. <laughs> time to worship in a, a more in intimate way, whatever that means for you. If it's sitting, if it's standing, you're welcome to do either. If it's walking around, totally fine. Take this time to be present with your maker. It's who you are, it's who you are, 
<laughs> Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Eileen. I'm a, a member here. And um, I forgot my phone, so thankfully Jessica's letting me borrow her phone. <laughs> but um, we exist to make disciples that shape our city and communities with the love of Jesus. So uh, we do that by connecting with God, growing with family, and serving the city. So uh, one way you can connect with God, or a few ways, but one is we'd like to connect with you first to connect you with resources. So you'll have a connection card on your seat, and you can also go online uh, and the drop-down menu, there's a connect uh, page, and you can just type in your information as well as any prayer requests. So we would love to pray for you and get you connected with our uh, community groups this week. Um, and then a way to grow with family is um, Y44, which is their youth uh, group, I guess. And um, they are meeting on Saturday, January 20th at Oscar Ingresia's house at 5.30 p.m. So come join them as they celebrate the new year with a campfire, s'mores, and hot cocoa. So it's Saturday, January 20th. And then another way we can grow with family and connect with God is through our women's Bible study this semester. It's, it's called Resilient, and we'll be studying the character of God through the women of the Bible. Um, each teaching uh, or group group will be led by a different lady from our congregation and um, the first one is always the third the fourth sorry the last Thursday of the month and the first one is January 25th and Kelsey Terrison will be leading that one so um, and every week it'll be at the Allen's house but this month it'll be at the Guerrero's so let us know um, if you need any details we also have a group me, uh, so join our group me, ladies group me, and we'll post on there too. Uh, but if you have any questions, Lex Salazar is the person to contact. Um, and then say the date, our women's retreat is the first Saturday in March, so it's March 2nd. And um, there's more information on that coming soon. Um, so last, we can, we'll serve the city. Uh, part of uh, how we can serve the city is by giving because our um, tithe goes to local ministries, financial partnerships, and serving opportunities. Um, and we give in obedience, but also as a way to remind ourselves of what's most important. Um, and there are three ways to give electronically, and there's also a box there on your left, but you can give via text, online, or our church center app. Okay, um, if you could join me for, as I pray for the offering and for Josh. Uh, Lord, thank you for um, being so generous in providing for our needs. Um, you say that we should give you our first fruits. And so I pray that um, you would um, allow us to give generously back to you uh, for all you've given to us. And I pray that you would use it for your kingdom. Um, and I want to lift up Josh at this time as he prepares to speak from your word, that you would um, be encouraging us and um, convicting us, and uh, I pray that you will continue the good work you started in us until the day of completion when you return. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody uh, give Eileen a round of applause again. Yeah, there we go. Good morning. 
I'm going to do it again because some of y'all got taco in your mouth. I understand that. I'm mad at you, uh, but I'm going to give you another shot. All right. Good morning. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I especially say good morning to y'all because you're here. All right. Shout out to you. Uh, yeah, I, I fully appreciate uh, the trek that it was for you to get here this morning. I got to be honest with you. If I didn't live less than 10 minutes from here, we might not be having churches. <laughs> but because, because I live so close, I was like, well, I got no excuse. So, uh, so I was like, I got to be here. But you are here despite the cold, uh, maybe driving more than 10 minutes, more than the eight minutes it took me to get here. Uh, and so I want to say thank y'all. Thank y'all. And shout out to you at home. If you're not here, I hope you're, you're safe and that you are warm. Uh, I, am, I am not warm, and as a result, feel very unsafe, uh, but, um, but I pray that you're feeling good, um, all the good stuff. And so thank y'all for being here today. Uh, welcome to the coldest Sunday that we're going to have all year. I, I'm, I'm believing that by faith, um, that we ain't going to have another one like this for the rest of 2024. That's my honest-to-God hope here. Um, Hey, what I want to do is start today with just a simple question, um, and it is this. What does genuine, unconditional love look like? What does genuine, unconditional love look like? And I don't, I'm not, uh, what is it when you ask but you don't expect an answer? Rhetor I'm asking rhetorically. Uh, I'm asking genuinely. I want to hear maybe one or two of y'all. What does that look like? What does genuine, unconditional love look like? You can throw out a simple person. You can throw out an example. Take, take a second to say it. I'm not. You're okay. There are about 20 of us here. I'm, I ain't in no rush, all right? You all right. Loving people when you mess up or love, being loved when you mess up. I think that's great. Self-sacrificing. Okay, sacrificial love. Also really, really good. Uh, anybody else? Do one more. Covenant. Okay, so like an agreement, a covenant between Two people. Um, let's do one more. I'm really liking y'all's vibes right now. Jesus. All right. All right. We're going to end on that one. All right. That was maybe the most Christian answer of them all. Okay. Um, what does genuine, unconditional love look like? I once heard a story where a young man asked that exact same question, looking up at the stained glass windows of his old church while standing Next to his father, he looked up at what seemed to be the towering father uh, that he had, uh, despite the fact that realistically, you know, when you're a kid, your dad can be like 5'9", and you're still like, this guy's a giant. He looks up at the towering father, and he says, Dad, out of curiosity, how does God love us? Well, the dad says, he loves us with genuine, unconditional love. Uh, and of course, if when you're a kid, I have kids. I get this a lot. You can say words, and because you think you know them, you say them. But the thing is, you realize shortly after that that just because you know them does not mean that they know them. And so, of course, the boy looks back up at his towering 5'9 father and says, Dad, what does unconditional, genuine love look like? What does it look like? And that takes the father back for a moment, because what does it look like? What does it mean? We threw out three or four different answers. But when you look at your own life and you look and see where is genuine, unconditional love 
in my life? How have I felt it? How have I, how have I given it? How, how have I given it? And he pauses and he looks back at his son. He says, well, you remember the kids that used to live next door? Kid looks back, says yes. And you remember when they got their puppy? They said, yes, yeah, I remember that. And you remember how when they first got him, they loved him. They cared for him. They made sure he was fed. They played with him constantly. It was like their favorite thing to talk about and their favorite thing to do. And they were consistently loving and caring and enjoying that puppy. But do you remember how after a few months, they seemingly stopped coming outside as much? And they stopped playing as much. And they stopped caring as much. They started to neglect him. At times, they would get frustrated and even mistreat him. And how that increased and increased to the point that if you had not seen the dog in their house or in their yard, you may not perceivably be able to know they had a dog at all. But every time that dog sees them, his tail is wagging, his tongue is out, he's full of joy, he's full of happiness. He longs to be with them. And every moment they're there, he enjoys it deeply. And the father looks back and says, that's what genuine and unconditional love looks like. And so the son looks back and goes, what does that have to do with God? And of course, it, though not the perfect comparison, is an example or vision of how God cares for us. Right, that you, like me, have probably been in a place where you have valued God deeply, where you've come to church and you've been on fire. You've cried at every song. You've listened to every word that's come out of the pastor's mouth. You've prayed deeply. You've closed your eyes. You've been so deeply connected to God, and you long with nothing more, you long for nothing more than to connect with him, to feel him, to sing to him, to love him, to pray to him, to receive from him, to be with his people. And then shortly after that, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years, slowly started to taper off. And the prayers became more uncommon. And the longing was just a little bit less. And the desire was just a little bit less. And maybe you started coming to church less or spending time with Christian community less. Or, or maybe, maybe you just didn't have the fire with the song that you did before. And so you sang the songs, but they meant very little to you besides a tradition or besides a routine or besides a habit. And yet... The God that we often neglect and converge on mistreatment every time he is aware of our presence and we acknowledge him at all deeply longs to be with us. That his heart is filled with joy when he spends time with you and when you desire to spend time with him. That's the picture that the father desired to paint for his son. And I think that's a pretty good, pretty good picture. While I don't think that God is a love-struck puppy, I do believe that God is a deeply caring, loving God whose patience and whose incredible long-suffering endures with you and I, endures with our failures and our shortcomings, with our indiscretions, with our lack of reverence, with our lack of respect, with our lack of faith, with our lack of love, with our lack of affection, and somehow still responds like a puppy who desires nothing more than to be with us. That's the God that we serve. That's the God you're here worshiping. That's our God. That's what it looks like. There's a good intention behind this story. God's love is absolutely incredible. And last week, we discussed how despite the Israelites' angry and sarcastic feelings toward God, God's starting point with them 
and his starting point with us today and his ending point with them and his ending point with us today is that he deeply, genuinely loves them as he deeply, genuinely loves us. He loves us in a genuine and, and might say, unconditional way that does not rely upon your actions or my actions to dictate his feelings, but chooses to love us. And he loves us in a way that elicits joy in him to be with us. Even when we fail to share those feelings, we, sh- we fail to reciprocate those feelings. Even when we step to him and we are filled with a sort of inconvenience or maybe even a, a, a sort of frustration that I am having to do this routine again, even in those moments, he still deeply enjoys being with us. However, unlike the example that the father gave with the dog, right, our God is not a simple puppy. While his love is constant and un relenting, it's not weak. He's not weak. And while he longs to be with us, he's also willing to point out and to correct the areas in our hearts and in our lives where we are failing to reciprocate the love that he has for us, and we're failing uh, to treat him respectfully, maybe even to point out the places where we have wronged him and how it's hurt him, but more importantly, in his heart, how it's hurt us and what it's caused in our life as a result of not loving him and not reciprocating and, and, and his, his emotions, his affection, and, and really calling out and correcting some of our failures. This week, as we continue on in Malachi, uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and shift a little bit uh, our focus in the book. Having established the main point of Malachi's entire message, which is that God has loved us, he does love us, and he will forever love us. He will never change in his love for us. Last week we referenced uh, the verse in, later on in, in Malachi 3.8 that I have not changed, and because of that you have not perished. This beautiful vision of God's long-suffering love, Malachi now changes his attention to focus on the areas where, despite God's love and despite God's efforts, the Israelites have simply failed in their end of the relationship. And while these verses were not written directly to us, I do believe they offer us a common human experience when it comes to our relationship with God. Experiences that may, on one hand, encourage you so that you know, man, I, I know I, at least I ain't messing up like that. That's pretty bad. On the other hand, they are experiences that may bring conviction that despite thousands of years, multiple, un, really countable technological advancements, a completely different culture, a completely different language, a completely different world, we're not so different from the, the people that we would deem as simple when we read Malachi. Either place you end up finding yourself or anywhere in between, the root of Malachi's message is still the same. Turn to and belong to the God that has, does, and will always love you. Who, out of that love, though, will meet you where you are, but also desires to call you forward, maybe where you're not, to to grow, right? Both of those things are true. We'll explore a little bit more later, but with that in mind, let's go ahead and get started. We're going to break down today's text into three, maybe four. I ain't going to lie. It's two, maybe three, maybe four, depending on what time looks like. Um, Issues that, that Malachi seems to be dealing with. The first one is our profession, and when I say that, I mean our proclamation what we confess and what we profess we believe, our profession. The second one is our gifts, what we offer to the Lord. And and the third one is our service, how we dedicate our lives to him, right? There may be a fourth, but 
but we'll, we'll wait on that until a minute. So what I want to do is I want to read uh, where we're going to start with in our profession, and that's verses 6 and 7 in chapter 1. If you would, uh, stand with us out of respect and reverence for God's word. Uh, after that, uh, if, if you're able, and if you can, I'm going to finish reading, and then I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord in which you are, feel free, you're invited to respond with uh, thanks be to God, and then we'll go ahead and jump in. And so this is Malachi 1, verses 6 through 7. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you? And you say the Lord's table is contemptible. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, have a seat. You're good. Have a seat, all right? A son honors his father, a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? If I have a master, where is your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies to you priests who despise my name. God begins this section, if I'm going to be honest with you, with a seething indictment. This is a seething indictment. I think if, if we're going to be honest, what's gonna, what we're going to see and what we're going to notice over the course of the next few weeks is that Malachi and God speaking through Malachi had to really set the stage of his deep, unending, eternal, overwhelming, unconditional love for God's people because there's going to be a long stretch of verses, a long stretch of chapters where there are going to be very real seething indictments of their conduct, where there's going to be true evaluations of the heart. And, and a question of, hey, is this right? And an answer of, no, it's not. And here's the thing. This is, this is why earlier I said that, that love is beautiful. It's powerful, God's love particularly, but it can also be challenging. And we have to wrestle with that. Because although God's love is deep, it's eternal, it's unending, it's unconditional, it doesn't mean that it's all the way and always accepting. There are moments where God looks at our lives and out of his goodness and out of his love looks at our lives and in essence says, you at the moment are wrong. Your choices, the view you have of life, your attitude, your heart, not only is it leading to hurting me, but as a result, it's leading to hurting you. And oftentimes the reality is that it's leading to hurting others. In this particular verse where we see that more than anything, is that God starts with this indictment of priests. He says, man, you, where's my honor? And where's the fear you have of me? You priests who despise my name. That, that is powerful, and it's important. Why? Because what God is in essence saying is that I'm going to correct your heart, and I'm going to correct your actions. I'm going to correct your life, not just because it hurts me, but because you as the leaders, the, the, the spiritual leaders of our culture, our society, our community, your actions don't just have this isolated uh, impact in your house and in your family, but as priests of our community and priests of the Lord, your actions seep into the realities of those around you. And so they feel not just what, what I'm saying, but they're getting filtered through your sin and filtered through your uh, confusion, and as a result, they're being misled. Your actions are not just hurting you. Your actions are honestly and, and very truly hurting others. And here's why that's important. We're going to skip down a little bit. Um, Anisha, it's going to go to Malachi 1.14, because when we continue to read through just this section, 
you may think, oh, well, God's talking to priests, so how does that apply to me? When we get to the final verse of this section in verse 14, Malachi shifts his attention from priests in, in this way, saying, the deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. What does that mean? Well, well priests weren't the ones offering their animals. The community were the one offering their animals. The community, the community were the people who were promising to sacrifice to God and to honor God. What Malachi is saying is I'm handling the priests right now because their actions impact others. And as a result, and the scary thing, is that I don't excuse those who have been influenced by them, but in fact, they are still cursed when they make a vow and bring detestable sacrifices to me. Now, here's the thing. Pause right here. Some of you are like, what's this about sacrifices? Fair enough. All right, fair. What I want you to really pause and think about is let's step away from the world that's there and the world that's here. There's a, I mean, a literal world of context when it comes to the sacrifices and the sacrificial system and the temple and everything like that. At root, this design, this whole system was meant to point to one thing, that God is merciful and that sin is serious. That God is merciful and that sin is serious. That sin is serious and that it demands consequence. It demands very real consequence. That it invites judgment and it invites pain. That there are sins that are so vast, I mean, so, so grave, I should say, that are so serious that they bring about not just spiritual death, but we can see them bring about very real material death. That they bring about emotional death. That the wages of sin, as Paul puts it, are in fact death. We see that across the board. We can limit that to a spiritual way and say, well, it separates us. But, but those of us that have gone off the deep end and indulged in sin in ways that we don't like to share or maybe feel ashamed also know that it's not just spiritual death that sin brings. That you can oftentimes have emotional, I mean, just sadness and things that have come from just as consequence to poor choices that we've made. Not that that only comes from that, but that those can be very real consequences. And, and likewise, that they're very real physical consequences to our sinful actions. Anyone that's, that's made really bad choices when it comes to things uh, like drug addiction or, or several other things knows that sometimes years later you can feel the effects of that, that there are physical consequences, that there feels like a very coming physical death that can come from sin. And so we know that sin is serious and that sometimes it can even require not just spiritual death, but we experience very real death in, in our lives and in our world. And, and the sacrificial system is meant to communicate that reality while also helping us see that in the midst of that, God remains merciful, that God remains compassionate, that God looks at you and looks at me and a longing for redemption and restoration does not always visit those realities of death on us, but brings about mercy uh, through a sacrifice. Now, if your ears are ringing Jesus and you're a Christian, they should be. That's what it's all pointing to. However, we're not there yet. They're bringing sacrifices, and they're, they're, not bringing, they're, not, they're not bringing their best sacrifices, right? It starts with the priest, but it extends to the entire people. And here's the thing. God's issue in this moment, at this time, in this initial set of verses, isn't even with the sacrifices themselves. 
He says, man, if I am father and I am master, where is my honor? Where is the fear of me? Quick side note again. Let's think about fear. There's two fears with the same word that the Bible oftentimes communicates. One is a very real fear, feeling of insecurity, feeling of impending doom. And one is oftentimes this feeling of trust and security. It's almost the exact opposite. You see this, I mean, most specifically, you see this in a verse like Exodus 20:20 in the Old Testament, where we see Moses say this, do not be afraid. That's that word for fear. Do not fear. That's what kind of the most accurate literal translation would be. Do not fear, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. This idea is don't have insecurity, don't have an impending sense of doom, because God has come to test you and to refine you so that you will trust him and not sin. That's the idea in this verse. Same exact word, two very different meanings in just one sentence. And this is what's happening here. God in, in Malachi 1.6, God is saying, you call me father. And in our culture, a culture built on honor, where the son and the daughter honor the father, you call me father, and yet there's no honor. Masters honor, uh, servants honor their master, and yet you look at me and you don't trust me as a, good, as a good master. And yet I am a good father. I am a good master. God says, I'm a good king. The end, near the end of this section, he says, my name will be exalted across the earth because if you can't recognize I'm a good king, if you can't recognize I'm a good father, if you can't recognize I'm a good master, I guarantee you someone else will. You will be alone. And here's what I want us to hear. You will be alone in your indictment of God because the person that's wrong in our indictment of God completely is us. We're the ones who are wrong in our indictment of God. It doesn't mean that we don't feel the feelings. It doesn't mean that we don't express the feelings. Last week, we heard all this about how he has loved them, how he loves us, how he endures our doubt, he endures our struggles, he endures our anger, but that doesn't mean that our doubt, our anger, or anything else is going to be true. It's not. God is good, a good father, a good master, a good king, and the indictments we roll out against him display and communicate more about us than they do him. And his issue here is that even that the presence of this doubt, the presence of this anger, the presence of this uh, complete neglect of saying, you, I don't think you are a good father. I don't think you are a good master. I don't think you are a good king is rooted in the hearts of the very same people who show up on Sunday and say, you're a good master. You're a good king. You're a good father. The very priests who proclaim and profess to represent God, to display his character, to lead the people to his feet and to his altar are the very same people who are wrapped up in this deep, dark um, doubt and anger towards God, and yet they profess with their mouth the opposite thing. And God's issue with that is the hypocrisy of it. That very real feeling where we walk around, and you may have experienced this, where you have either been hurt by people or you have participated in the idea of someone walking around and being so full of faith, being a super Christian, and yet their heart seems so very far from God, doesn't align with God, doesn't display God's character because part of them doesn't believe God's character. And a lot of us have participated in that, 
But a lot of us have also been hurt by that like on a personal level. You know not just other Christians, but you know spiritual leaders that have actually hurt you and put you in positions where you feel vulnerable because you trusted them based on their profession, based on them saying, I love God, he's good, I follow him, I'll lead you to him. When in reality, their heart was far from him. They didn't believe him. And the result of it, again, was them hurting you, them hurting others. As a pastor, I want to say I'm sorry for that. One, I, I hope, though I can't promise, and it's not going to fail, but as a pastor, I'm sorry. I hope that you never experienced that with me. I want to invite you and have an open-door policy where if you ever feel even the slightest bit like that, tell me. Like, like tell me. I want to know. And if you, don't, if you don't feel like I responded in a healthy way, like, tell Mark. He's a deacon here. He has my ear. Tell him. As we install elders, tell them. Like, I don't, we're not going to hide in that way here because our goal is to see not this church grow or me be protected, but it's to see you serve, for you to grow. Now, this is the issue that, uh, that's at hand here, that there are, that's my son, by the way, um, that there is a hypocrisy at work in the hearts of the priests that is hurting and leading God's people uh, incorrectly that may even be resulting in hypocrisy and a lack of genuine love uh, despite these open professions, despite these words that at this point are empty and are, are, are not impactful but are in vain. And that leads us right into the second issue that, that is at hand. That man, that there's a profession that is uh, hypocritical and empty, but then there's also gifts that completely lack reverence. If you continue on in the verse that we're reading through in verses 8 and 9, it says, continues, when you present, they, remember, they just asked, how do we defile you? How do we disrespect you? And I got to say, this is like the most four to five-year-old kid thing of all time. Because these are all priests. They know exactly what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. They know that a sick, a lame, a hurt, a blemished, quote-unquote, of any kind, animal is not meant to be sacrificed, yet they've done it over and over and over again. And like my son knocking something over and me walking to be like, hey, did you do that? And he went, no, I didn't do it. Who did it, bro? It's you and this thing up here, that's all. He's like, I don't know. I don't know who did it. Right? God's like, bro, you've defiled me. And they're like, how do we defile you? It's like, bro, you know, you know, bro. Like, God's like, you know, I know. And I know, you know, I know. All right, let's stop this. And he continues. In this, that is in essence his, you know, I know. I know you know that I know. Response. Verse 8 says, when you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? When you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? And then this is seething, y'all. Like meaning this is such a cut to the point response. Bring it to your earthly governor. Remember that they don't have a king of Israel. They have governors as oppressed people still under the rule of a foreign nation. And God says, take that to the foreigners. Take that to foreign governor. Who are not me. That they're not the holy God, the Lord of armies. Who, who have power only because I have given them power. Take that to them. 
would he, the governor, be pleased with you or show you favor? And now with the same gift, you plead God's favor. Will he be gracious to us since this has come from our hand? Will he show any of you favor? And this is powerful. This is powerful because there's, there's a lot of context wrapped up in this. What you may be asking here is, were they not giving? And here's the thing. The Israelites in this particular season of their existence were giving a lot. They were extremely generous. They were rebuilding temples. They were starting the process of rebuilding walls. They were basically rebuilding an entire city, an entire culture, an entire world, and they were giving a lot. They were giving plenty. These were people that for all intents and purposes were extraordinarily generous. You would never say anything of the sort. However, in their generosity, they weren't sacrificial. They were generous, but they weren't sacrificial. And here's the thing, God gauges what we give, not, not by how much it's worth to everyone else, but by how much it means to us. That's how God gauges a gift. Not by how much everyone else says it's worth, but by how much it means to you and me. Right? Whether he's worthy of what's most valuable to us, because he in turn is what's most valuable to us. That's how God gauges the worth of the gifts that we bring. We see this in something like Mark, uh, I believe it's chapter 11. Uh, did I put that back there, Anisha? Mark 12, 42 through 44, right? We see Jesus say this, that then a poor widow came and dropped two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all others. For all they gave, for they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Wow. I don't think Jesus is trying to point us to the idea of giving everything you have to live on and being broke or anything like that. The vision here is particularly that giving what's most valuable, something that hurts, giving something that's meaningful to us, is the gauge with which he identifies the value of the gift you give. Like someone who gives something, but it's just a drop in the bucket for them, you know, like people say, like, Bill Gates is the most generous person in the world. And it's like, I don't think that man knows. Like, that's a drop in the bucket for that man. Like, he's like, 500 million here? Ah, just write it off, dude. It's fine. If at any time your gift results in a, it's fine, then God's going to look and be like, the, the gift is the issue here. The, the heart is the issue, not the gift, I mean. We're not going to go through it completely, but I did want to make mention of it. This is not spurring up here in Malachi. This has been present throughout the entire Bible. Even in Genesis 4, if you actually look at the way Cain and Abel is teased out in Genesis 4, it has nothing to do with the, the content of the gift, with, with the type of the gift. It, it actually has to do with the people that are giving the gift, the people that are offering the gift. In Hebrew, what you'll end up seeing if, if you translate it in the most literal way is that it'll say, and Abel, he, he gave, he gave his first fruit. And then we'll go back and say, and Cain, he, he gave, Cain, he gave, 
an offering. First off, in English, that's really redundant. But in Hebrew, trying to communicate a very particular and a very important thing, that the gift that was being given was not what was going to be judged in that moment. The man giving the gift was going to be judged in that moment. The man offering what was either valuable or not valuable, the heart of the individual, the desire of the individual, the, the, the longing to, to respect and to, to appreciate and to love God, that was what was being presented to the Lord in that moment. So I don't, I don't want to say that I don't care, because as the leader of a church, sometimes I'll be caring, but God, right, when he looks at our gifts, I want you to know that he has no, to the one who, who owns everything, your generosity means nothing unless it's coupled with a love for him with a reverence for him. That's what's happening here. That God is looking at, at, at the scope of the priest. He's looking at the people of God, and he's going, man, you don't even give what's valuable to you. You may give a lot, but you don't give what's meaningful to you. You don't give what's important to you. And here's the thing, We're, I'm going to have to just send you all some of the notes because I'm going to stop there. There's one to two more that we could, go, we could keep going through. But here's what all of it boils down to. Whether it's our profession, our, our proclamation of faith, whether it's your words, whether it's your gifts and your giving and your resources, whether it's your service, whether it's your actions or the way you live your life, whether it's your time and the time you dedicate here, God is actively not after any. That in the grand scheme of things, when God looks at you, the sum of you is not your words. The sum of you is not your giving. The sum of you is not your time. The sum of you uh, is not your service to him. The sum of you is when you stand before him and your heart either flutters back as though he is a judge and angry and, and just the horrible man. Or if you look at him and go, that's my father. That's my master. I love him. He's good. In other words, God is not after any of what you can do and what you can say and what you can give, but God is after your heart. That's what he's after. That's what he's actively after. And so when you look at your life and you walk through your life and every single moment of your life seems to be this tick uh, of, of whether, hey, I've done this, I've done this, check mark on this, check mark on that, and you think that that's building some type of rapport between you and God, I want to emphatically tell you, if, you're not, if your heart is not closely knit to the God that you're serving, to the God that you're giving to, to the God that you're speaking to, to the God that you spend time trying to associate with, it's not what he's after. I don't want to say it's meaningless, but man, it's not far from it. In fact, later on, we'll see him say, I wish that you would board up the doors of the temple and stop burning useless fire to me. Because save your heart being in it, the actions that you're doing, you know what? Yeah, they are, they're useless. They mean nothing. But there's a beauty to that too. It's not looking at you and saying you're worthless. It's looking at you and saying you're worth more than your actions. That you're worth more than your words. That you're worth more than your failures and more than your successes. 
that your worth is not wrapped up in whether you have succeeded or whether you have failed, of whether you have done right or whether you've done wrong, of whether you've read your Bible or you've said the right thing or you've given enough or you've spent enough time at church or whatever it is that you feel you can build your identity on, that you are worth so much more than that because everything that you are is not wrapped up in what you do or what you say or what you give, but it's wrapped up in the one that says, I have loved you. I have loved you, and because of that, and because I don't change, you have not perished. I will always love you, right? And the invitation back is not say the right thing, uh, read the right thing, give the right thing, but love me. Love me too. That's where your value is. And he loves you. And the response being, and I, I love you too. That's what Malachi is getting at here. That all of the right actions, right words, right gifts, right you name it, right? It's useless. If the heart doesn't look back at the God that's loved us, does love us, and will always love us and go, I love you too. I love you too. Here's, and this may feel scary too, let me say that. This may feel slightly overwhelming. Um, let me be honest. Let's be real. Right? Let's be real with each other right now. For a lot of us, like, bro, we're banking on some of that. Right? Like, we're banking on the, I go to church. We're banking on the, but I read my Bible. Right? We're banking on the, but I gave. We're banking on the insert the thing that you feel that you cling to and go, hey, I, I do this. I do this. And so this can feel overwhelmingly scary to us, right? Because it's taking a step away from what's in our control, which is look at what I do. And it's taking a step into I'm going to rely on what I cannot control, which is your love for me. And that is hard for a lot of us. That's hard for a lot of us. It's challenging. It fills us with insecurity. It fills us with a feeling of instability. We desire control oftentimes. A lot of us in here do. Trust me, I'm your pastor. I know some of you still. <laughs> like we, a lot of us in here be like, man, I just really like that feeling of knowing exactly what's going to come. And, and when we get to say, hey, look at what I can do. Look at what I can give. Insert your thing. Right? It, it gives us a sense of control rather than when we step away and go, no, I'm completely relying on you, your love for me, and your care for me. It's really hard. And it may make us feel like, man, how, how can I do that? Maybe like the Israelites, you say, how, how can I trust you to know that, that it's not going to change one day, that I'm going to be skating along, trying my best, trusting my life to you, and one day the floor doesn't just fall out between me and you. And it feels like all goes to hell. I don't feel loved. What, what's going to happen? I want to take you back to two words that are actually pretty, pretty beautiful and pretty powerful in this, in this section. And it's the first words. If I am a father, right, the son honors me. If I am a master, the servant honors me. Here's the thing, no matter who you are in this room, 
you have failed and I have failed at some point at being the son and at being the servant. You have neglected God with your profession and your heart. You have given, but your heart has not been in it. You have served him, but your heart has been far from him. You have given your time to him, but your heart has been far from him. And, and the thing is, if that was where the story ended, you and I would be in the exact same place as the Israelites, getting a seething indictment from God about how his love cannot be fully communicated and fully expressed to you because your failures have placed a rift between God and you. That would be where we ended today. And the ultimate end point for that would be go out there and love God more. You got to go love him. Go love him, and from there, let all of your love start making you do the right thing. And if you can get the magical, seemingly impossible combination of my heart is in the exact right place and my actions are in the exact right place, you will be in the place to finally receive the fullness of God's love for you. But that's not where the story actually ends, is it? That those who have been sons and servants but failed as sons and servants no longer relate to God on how we have failed or succeeded at being sons and servants. But that through, out of God's mercy and compassion, seeing where we are, he sends the true son and the true servant. That, that there would be a son who was not you and not me, whose heart was never far from the Lord, whose heart was never even close to him but somehow failed to do the right thing. But there would be a son who completely captured what it meant to be a true son, to honor the father even up to death, to say, not my will be done, but your will be done, who would cry out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do, who would commit his whole life, even his death, into the hands of the Father and say, you are, I'm one with you, you're one with me, right? This true vision of a son and a servant who would enter into the story and for you and for me be the son and the servant that we couldn't be, that we've never been, that despite your greatest efforts, you will never be, but because God has loved and does love and will always love, he sends a son and a servant who has been perfect and will be perfect and will always be perfect, who through faith in him, we are brought together with the great father, with the great master, with the great king, not as though we are relating to him on our failures and our successes, but are brought near to the fullness of God's love and care and mercy and protection and guidance and affection based on what that perfect son, perfect servant, who he is. I don't know, actually I'll say that there was some really confusing diagram in one of the commentaries that I read where it said, here's the eyeball of the prophet and it literally drew an eyeball. I should have just put it up here for the sake of the, the jokes and the vibes. But it said, here's the eyeball of the prophet and then it created this long, long cylinder it said, here's the things that will be completed now, but here's a time where we don't know exactly what's going to be, when it's going to be completed and when it's going to be finished. But in the eyeball, in the vision of the prophet, at the end, there stands the presence of the true son and the true king. <laughs> that every prophecy, that every prophet that ever levied an indictment against people, that ever said, hey, man, we need more, we're not, we're failing, like we, God's love is, is here and present, but it's unable to completely get to us. Every single moment of prophecy that's ever challenged or, or, or brought about the struggles and, 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 and unveiled the failures of the people that at the end of that vision, regardless of which prophet it is, at the end of it stands the, the victorious, uh, the incredible, the risen, the perfect son. And here's the thing. 
whether you have failed at everything we've talked about today or you've succeeded at everything, likewise, God invites you to, to, to take and to hold the vision where at the end, whether you can get better at these things or whether you are just going to be like um, loving, lovingly, whether you're going to be trash at them for the rest of your life, right? No matter which case you end up in, at the end of the vision of our lives, like the prophet who calls into question our hearts at the end, it should be a vision of the king and the son and the servant standing victorious that where we have failed, he succeeded. And now we place our trust not in what we have done and in what we have failed to do, but in the king victorious. Right, like the vision of Malachi, that's the vision we're invited to hold together as a community of faith. That we now rest and abide and belong to the king. Not even as beloved servants and sons who fail, but as beloved servants and sons who stand in the victory of the perfect mediator, Jesus. Right, that's what happens here. That's the beauty of it. That the vision of all of this is not, hey, get right. You have failed. Love him more. But that the vision of it is where you have failed to love him. One has loved him perfectly. And you now stand in the grace and mercy of God, not as one burning useless fire, but as one abiding in holy fire, thanks to the work and death and resurrection of the king. And so rejoice and lift your voice, not out of stress, not even out of pressure, but instead out of rejoicing because the king has come and the king has redeemed and the king has saved. He saved us straight out of our own failure and into his own glory, not by any working of us, but by all the working of him. What incredibly and amazing good news. That's incredible. That's incredible. And so we stand here not as the one who doesn't love enough, give enough, or anything else, but as one who is saved, redeemed, restored, forgiven, and brought close by the ministry and the work and the blessing, and bless you, of Jesus. Praise him. Praise him. That when we say you are a good, good father, that when we say we will spend 10,000 years and then forevermore praising him, that when we lift up the glories of his name, it's not just that he loved us when we were failures, but that he redeemed us into his own victory and glory, that we would stand before the great king whose name will be exalted in all the earth as sons and as daughters, completely restored, completely accepted, completely brought near, completely intimate with our God and our Father based on his actions in his son on the cross, that the true son and the true servant would come in to redeem you and to redeem me. I'm going to sing about that today. Let's sing about it right now because I'm fixing to stop. That's where we're led. That's where we're led today. That our hearts would be stirred by the man on the cross saying, if you can't come to me, I'll go to you and I'll keep going to you. I like goodness and mercy following you all the days of your life. I will pursue you until the end. And we ask, how do I know? And we look at the man on the cross as evidence of God's deep, unending, eternal love for you and me. That would motivate us toward, yes, like, like proper profession. That as you sit here today and you observe and take in the man on the cross, that you would sing truly. I hope that you would be moved to genuine worship of God as you reminisce on the man on the cross. I likewise hope 
that if you, as you give, you would give with a deep desire to honor God, that you would give sacrificially because you know that nothing on this side of eternity could possibly meet uh, the needs that I have the way the King of Glory does, right? I hope that it motivates you toward the things that are discussed here, but that it would be motivated not by our pressure, by our guilt, or by anything else besides seeing the depths of God's love through the work, sacrifice, and resurrection of Jesus that that love has no ends, that death itself could not hold that love back from you. But that's where we are today. So let's think about that. I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going to take communion, and we're going to sing to the Lord. And so if you would join me. Father, thank you um, that today, I, today I don't know what practical application there is because you've told us there's no giving, there's no speech, there's no time, there's no service. And that's not what you're looking for, but rather your desire is to see the heart of your people come back to you, to arrive in a place where we offer our lives to you, where we don't just, just say, I submit to a habit or routine, but where we gain a vision of you that actually elicits a, a longing and a love. Thank you, though, Father, that where we have failed in that and still do, that that isn't even where you stopped that ridding us of the pressure of our own successes and failures isn't where you stop, but even when we have failed to love you, you came to us in your son. And that the true son and the true servant where we have failed to even love, loved you perfectly and now invites us to see your love, to enable our heart through a vision of your love sacrificial, your genuine unending love, that while the puppy may have been neglected, you were neglected and beaten and scorned so that we could be loved fully, completely, uh, accepted completely and fully. And so thank you, Father, that even when we run, that goodness and mercy pursues us and follows us all the days of our life. Thank you that that is nowhere more embodied than in your son hanging from a tree. Help us, Father to see you now and the love of your heart. Help us to see your affection, your care. Help us to see us running, but the mighty humbling himself and the never changing chasing. Help us to see the one who has chosen us, chooses us and will always choose us. Help us to see you and to love you today, Father. Help us to reciprocate the love that you've poured out on us day in and day out. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, we love you. Help us to love you today, even as we sing to you. Love you, I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Over the course of the next couple of songs, we're going to take communion. And so feel free to come down the center, uh, take the cup, go back to your chair. The only thing we say is that uh, we encourage you not to take communion by yourself. We think following Jesus is not a solo project. It's a group project. It takes place and it happens best when you do it in the context of following him with us, other people. And so um, that's it. Just don't take communion by yourself. Uh, and we're going to sing a couple of songs during the course of the next few minutes.
fail, still your mercy remains. Should I stumble again when I'm caught in your grace, everlasting, your light will shine when all else fades, never ending, your glory goes beyond all
inside out Everlasting Your light will shine when all else fades Never ending Your glory goes beyond your pain And the cry of my heart is to bring you praise from the inside out Lord my soul cries out everlasting your light will shine when all else fades never ending your glory goes beyond all fame and the cry of my heart is to bring you praise from the inside out Lord my soul cries out Still running early because I was like 40 seconds here, all right? Um, I think we're going to read this verse at the end of service every week through this book. And uh, just this is my honest hope that by the time we get to the end of this, you are so overwhelmingly confident and punched in the face by God's love that you, it's like it's, it's so ingrained in your mind and in your heart that it nestles you into a, a rhythm of relationship with him for the rest of your life. The great challenge of our lives, the great challenge of your life is not going to be whether you said the right thing or did the right thing or gave the right amount. The great challenge of your life and my life is going to be wrestling with the truth that God loves you and that there's nothing you can do about it. That's the great challenge of our lives, of y'all's life, of my life. Um, but here's the thing. I deeply want to spend my life trying to figure it out. And I want you to grow to deeply long to spend your life trying to figure it out and trying to learn to love back in even just a fraction of the way that he's loved us. So I'm going to read the same verse that I read last week. And I'm letting you know, I'm going to read it again next week. And the week after that is going to be our last week in Malachi. And I'm going to read it that week. And in Romans 8, Paul says, For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I, uh, I pray that you have a great week where you feel intimately connected to God, the God that loves you deeply. Um, I pray that you're safe, stay warm, all that good stuff. Don't go nowhere tomorrow. And if you can get out of work or school Tuesday, do it. Uh, and so bless y'all. Uh, love y'all. You're sent. Have a good week.